So I'd like to talk this evening uh, with regard to a theme that's perhaps not a, a traditional theme for meditation retreats, but has nonetheless become a very central, I think, area of interest and concern for many people, including myself, in, in recent and also not so recent times. And I'd like to reflect on the, uh, the situation a little of our, of our human community and our world in relationship to the climate and ecological circumstance, which we could call an emergency or a crisis that we are in the midst of. And it's, I think, probably not the kind of topic that's often talked about on a retreat because we come along to a retreat to feel calm and peaceful. And it's not the kind of topic that necessarily invites that response. Um, and yet, of course, there's something unsettling about knowing that there is an area of concern if it's not spoken about, if it's not engaged with and addressed. And if we wish to follow the Buddha's teachings of wisdom and compassion, then I think we're very much called to turn towards what is true, to respond to where we see suffering or harm even though it's not easy even though it's not comfortable for us even at times and to look to see in ourselves in our hearts and in our world and our lives what might be appropriate what might be possible what might be skillful in response to our circumstance and so I'm sure you've you will have heard some of the information that I don't want to say too much about at this time, but we will have heard on the news about um, many circumstances related to climate destabilization and ecological breakdown. How do we respond when we hear such information? The accelerating environmental destruction that's happening around the globe, that there are intensifying extreme weather events, Families, communities losing their homes, their food security, their livelihoods. And the rapid species loss, melting polar ice caps, degrading soil fertility, rivers and lakes becoming toxified, toxicified, poisoned with industrial waste and oceans choking in plastic. It's, it's not easy to, to hear that. As uh, meditation practitioners, we, we have some training, we have some support in being able to turn towards what is not easy. And um, this, is, this is part of what meditation practice is concerned with, to enable us, to give us the capacity to, to turn towards and to face and to look directly at the circumstances of our life, our human mortality, and our collective mortality as a, as a living community and the risks that we face in regard to that. There are many responses we can have and one of the responses that I've had, and I've spoken with some of you here in different ways about this, is to engage in, in a form of activism that I only really recently encountered. In the uh, I mentioned, I think, 
few days ago that I'd been participating in the Extinction Rebellion protests in, in London just now before coming to the retreat and perhaps some of you have also been so engaged or engaged in other ways. And it's a curious thing to sit here as a Dharma teacher, having been engaged in these practices of peace and um, <coughs> cultivating or seeking to cultivate calm and wisdom and compassion for 30 years and to find myself choosing to engage in non-violent civil disobedience, to, to be arrested as I have done on a number of occasions now over the last year for various actions that I've taken part in seeking to bring attention to the situation, seeking to galvanize both public awareness and political urgency in response to the situation that we find ourselves in. And it's not an easy thing to cause sort of disruption, to stand on a road and choose not to leave or to blockade a building, attach oneself to it in some manner or form. And yet it seems to me that in certain circumstances our life calls us to make a response and sometimes to take a stand. And we're talking in um, one of the small groups today about what it is to stand up our standing meditation can represent something powerful for us to stand up in our life. And so for myself and all these actions together with groups of, of friends and like-minded and deeply caring human beings, we've placed ourselves in the situation where for some of us it has led to being arrested, to facing criminal prosecution and penalties for peaceful and non-violent actions that we feel moved by our conscience by our commitment to ethics for myself as a as a follower of the buddha's teachings my commitment to the precepts of non-harming call me to stand up in a situation like this in the just recent days and in april also the the two sort of mass international rebellion actions that we undertook to uh, join in with friends from not just this country but people in a range and many other countries around the world including actually interestingly many other meditation practitioners dharma followers and people of actually a wide range of faith traditions choosing to call to cause ongoing peaceful disruption And somehow something in my heart said to me, I have to do more than I've done so far. Writing letters, sending petitions off, march, joining marches and demonstrations. Somehow it doesn't seem to have made the difference that's needed. And last year, the IPCC report, the UN report on climate change, was very clear, unequivocal in fact, in stating that we have just 12 years to avert a climatic catastrophe. That we need to 
profoundly shift the way we're living collectively on this planet. And we need to do it urgently. And the report earlier this year from the UN panel on uh, biodiversity and ecology, ecosystems, reporting massive loss of living beings, species and ecologies, accelerating such that a million species at risk of extinction. And further and more recent up-to-date research suggesting even more serious consequences than those reports from the UN bodies. And the risk of social breakdown driven by food scarcity if we exceed two degrees global warming. Our grain harvest will fail. And there will be mass hunger, people on the move. And the history of our human community isn't good in those situations. Easily it leads to conflict. And some of the research even suggests that uh, we may not survive as a human species if we do not change the way we are living on this planet. It's quite something to contemplate. And we talk about contemplating sort of sore knees and unpleasant mind states. And this is of a whole other order when it comes to contemplation. It's not something that I invite you to do lightly. Any more than it's a lightly taken decision to stand on a street and be arrested for choosing not to move when the police require that one do so. like to invite you to take a moment to breathe and feel your body sitting here right now. Notice what happens as you hear this information. One of the reasons it seems we're not responding as we need to is because it's hard to take it in. It's hard to let us feel what it means and understandably even with training and practice and meditation and actually learning the skills of meeting even challenging experience it's not easy to take this in. So it's important that we kind of stay in contact with our bodies here. Now the uh, when 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 research sort of uh, direction goes to the suggestion that there's a one in twenty chance of human extinction. So not just massive destabilization and death, but actually the end of the human species. And it suggested a one in twenty chance, which. Actually, doesn't sound that bad. One, you know, one in twenty—that's that's not too high. But it's like, would we put our grandchildren on a plane if we knew it had a one in twenty chance of crashing, the loss of all life? We wouldn't. And somehow we're doing that. This very planet is that vehicle. And the current trajectories for increase in temperature that we're following, despite the agreements and the political sort of statements that suggest it's acknowledging the problem in terms of the facts of what's actually measurable as to what's happening in terms of increasing emissions in terms of rising temperature we're kind of heading in a direction that's cataclysmic and this is dukkha this is hard to bear 
we talked about a couple of nights ago, I think, or three nights ago, that, that what the Buddha spoke about, that which is hard to bear, not easy to turn towards. And yet we need to turn towards this. We need to consider what is a skillful or useful response here. Just as the Buddha's teaching invites us to consider what is a skillful or useful response to dukkha. To look and see if the ways we are responding are not serving, do not seem to transform the situation, then we need to look for new in different ways. And in the Buddha's teaching, both the truth of, of dukkha, of suffering, and its cause through craving, tanha, these, are, these teachings point to a response that's required and the teaching equally of the end of suffering and the path to that, the end of dukkha, and the path of practice that leads to that, they call for a response, they call for engagement. And they're articulated as internal practices, of course, but it seems to me they also translate and map into the collective social community, which is where these practices also need to be brought to bear. I became engaged with spiritual practice coming out of very much a sense of wishing to make a difference in the world for my own happiness and for the well-being of others and then realizing that actually my own limitations prevented me from doing so very effectively. And so becoming involved in inner development and growth and learning through spiritual practice but always with a sense for myself that this, this needs to also feed into the world. This needs to contribute to all of our well-being. And certainly in the, the vision of the Buddha's teachings, this is for the welfare of all that lives, not just ourselves as practitioners. And so looking at the situation here, it seems to me we have to contemplate, or we have to consider what's here. Because we kind of know, and we've known for decades in fact, what's going on. At least we've been paying even just a little bit of attention. Of course, it's very easy to get distracted by the next important thing that's happening. But it's not the information is secret. And it seems to me it's like an addiction situation where we're acting collectively like addicts. The doctors have told us that our lifestyle is killing us. The science is really clear. We can't keep living the way we are, but we seem to be doing so. Our lifestyle is killing ourselves and our ecology, but we don't seem to be able to stop. And this is, for me, the, the metaphor of addiction is really helpful because, oh, there's something compulsive in this. We can't just choose not to any more than we can stop doing some of the things we find ourselves doing internally when we're meditating. See, oh, wow, we need to actually take stock of the circumstance we're in. And there's a kind of humility that's required that says, oh, the way I've been trying to do this up to now and the way we've collectively tried to engage with this, it's not working. It's kind of failed. The call to government and to industry to change direction, it's not being heard. We're authorizing new coal mines. We're building new runways. We're proposing to. 
we're continuing to look at exploiting further fossil fuel reserves around the world when we already have much more fossil fuels that have been discovered than we can afford to burn. And so it kind of requires us to somehow sound the alarm. To step out of what otherwise becomes collusion at a certain point. When we realise something harmful is taking place. It may not be up to us. We may not be able to bring it to an end by ourselves. And of course we can't. This is well beyond what individual action can shift now. But we do also have to ask ourselves, to what extent can I just go along with imagining that somehow somebody else will sort this out. Because that's not what's happening. And so, in the context of the, the kind of the metaphor, and it may be not just a metaphor, it may be an actuality of addiction, some of the wisdom in the recovery community is understanding of this need to say honestly what's happening and that we're somehow out of control here. And to no longer collude with or enable what's going on sometimes requires a, qual a quality of what's called tough love. Interestingly, with one of the things I've understood through my engagement with, with Extinction Rebellion and with the exploring the principles of non-violent civil disobedience is that creating disruption is a way of, in a way, expressing a tough love of, of no longer colluding with or enabling the continuation of what's happening that's harmful. And part of what it is, is just the simple ability to turn away and pretend, I don't need to attend to this. By causing disruption, by causing trouble, without wishing to cause trouble to people, it gets our attention. Our attention is grabbed by the fact that someone is standing on the road and not allowing <coughs> us to go forward. And it seems something of this order is needed. It seems to me. Because this is a crisis. What we face. And this crisis that we talk of as a climate and ecological crisis is at its heart a crisis of spirit. A crisis of disconnection born of failing to see that we are not able to hold ourselves separate from what is around us and that if we fail to see our sacred and inseparable interconnection with and our dependence upon everything around us if we don't see that and we act as if that's not so we see that it becomes profoundly destructive what we do to our planet what we do to the ecology of this world we do to ourselves there isn't somewhere else where the effect happens that won't affect me. This is fundamental in the Buddha's understanding of our, the way that our actions are the basis for the well-being of our lives. If we act in ways that cause harm, it comes back to us. And collectively, that's what's happening. I often think about the, uh, the idea of throwing something away. You know, we have that, don't we? Throwing something away. And there's actually no away? There's no somewhere that's away. What's that? It's like there's some place that's not going to be relevant or close to me. But whatever we throw away comes back. 
And the plastic that we throw away comes back to us in the food chain. And we find it in our water, in our food, in our bodies, in our children. And it's kind of shocking and concerning, and yet it's important that we contemplate this. Our current trajectory of collective self-harm really demands or calls for the love and concern in our hearts to be given courageous expression and action. In the context of the actions with Extinction Rebellion that I've been involved with, choosing to take a stand in a public place with a group of friends, it's not easy to just stay there. In April, the days were hot. In October, they were wet. The nights were always cold. and We didn't get a lot of sleep. It's uncomfortable and inconvenient. But we made a choice. We made a commitment. It's interesting in meditation. We make a commitment to stay. And it's uncomfortable and not always feeling convenient. But it's an interesting training, a useful training for being able to say when something feels important, I will stay here in the face of whatever comes. Because something in me recognizes or believes or understands that this is more important than my comfort and convenience. So we made the choice to stay, to hold the ground so long as we could, facing arrest and prosecution. And there's a comfort that comes in the shared dedication and connection with each other, which maybe you've noticed sitting in meditation sometimes when it's difficult and it's hard, and yet somehow, even though it's difficult and it's hard, the fact that we're doing this together holds us. I spent one night last week locked to a fellow rebel on Whitehall outside the Ministry of Defence and uh, the police cleared everyone else away, arrested the ones who wouldn't move, moved the ones who would move. And then they told us that the team that can, the cutting sort of team as they call them, the specialist team that can remove the, the lock-on stuff, they'd gone home and weren't coming back. <laughs> it was a long, cold night. We hear the clear and overwhelming scientific consensus calling for urgent and uncompromising action to save our children, our communities, our world from ecological devastation. And we see this being disregarded, ignored, denied, it seems, in the pursuit of profit, convenience, or just the God of consumption. Let's just keep having more. It's really hard to look this in the eye. And again, I invite you to just keep breathing and noticing if it's okay. And if it's not okay, do what you need to do to take care as you listen. The temptation to turn away is so understandable. And yet, Teachings ask us, Dharma teachings, spiritual teachings ask us to turn towards this, to open to what we feel in response. Maybe fear or grief, 
anger, maybe horror, maybe skepticism or denial, numbness, confusion, helplessness. All these responses are completely understandable and valid. No response you could have is going to be other than valid in a situation like this. So it's really important. And this again is why I, I, I feel it's so important for people who have some ground in spiritual practice. Even if this is just a, an early stage in your journey with regard to that, that we do what we can to open to what is not easy to feel, to see, to contemplate here. Because there are those who have not the capacity to do so, it seems. And as we contemplate the actions of those who seek material gain from, this, from the harmful and destructive activities, I was just on trial, just found guilty of aggravated trespass for blockading a uh, conference of the petroleum industry earlier in the year, who were basically gathering together senior CEOs, executive officers and senior politicians from around the world, basically looking at figuring out how to dig out more fossil, how to find and extract more fossil fuels. The, uh, the reports that we know tell us that we, I think I said this already, we have four times as many reserves as we can afford to burn if we're to stay below the two degrees warming target of the Paris Accords, which actually two degrees will still be quite a challenging transition to deal with. But the idea that there are people making money by trying to dig, trying to find and access even more than we already have, which is too much already, it's hard not to feel judgment, feel anger. And equally, when we notice and see our own limitations and our personal choices, it's not easy when I choose to drive my car when I could have ridden my bicycle. And I do that frequently. Or I make a choice where it's a little more convenient for me, but maybe more impactful in the world. I was hungry one of the days in London and bought food in plastic boxes, which I hate doing, but I was hungry. It's hard to see that we too can't do this perfectly. But whether looking at the people who we might see as perpetrators or enablers or profiting from, or just ourselves as individual imperfect human beings. It's so important that we remember the teachings of loving kindness and of non-judgment, non-blaming, non-attacking. This is one of the things that drew me to Extinction Rebellion. As an activist movement, it has some deep understanding of the importance of non-blaming, non-attacking, staying in an open-hearted, and caring responsive relationship to the situation, to the individuals. It's only from that place that I, I feel we have the possibility of bringing about the changes that we need that are not guaranteed we'll be able to succeed at, but it nonetheless seems to me we must do what we can. And we may need to understand and really reflect on the way that anger and judgment needs to be held within kindness, to not identify with it, to not act on it. It's completely understandable if it arises for us. In fact, outrage is completely 
almost inevitable in a situation of seeing some of what's happening. And yet outrage can take its expression in a non-violent, in an open-hearted form of response, of courageous standing up in whatever way we might feel we wish or choose to. To connect with others, to make sure in a situation such as this, if you turn towards, if you do find yourself opening to and wishing to engage with this, that you do so with other people. That um, that image I used before of uh, from 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 the recovery world with regard to addiction, where we understand that actually it's out of my own power. I can't beat this myself. We can't do this ourselves. And turning to a higher power, which in that sort of in that particular tradition of sort of inner work is is a, is a religious or spiritual orientation generally. But in this context, it seems to me that higher power is actually our collective capacity. It's the collective human engagement, the collective spirit, the collective courage, and the collective love that we need to harness here. The love that's willing to go beyond our convenience and our comfort because continuing to seek to preserve and protect and enhance our comfort and our convenience is leading us to the most profound discomfort and inconvenience. Those two words won't go anywhere near what we're talking about if we don't really collectively respond in the way that we need to now. To harness the energy of our love and concern to demand urgent and effective action from our leaders and our countries, our world, to make and also to make such changes as we can individually. But to understand that the scale and urgency of the situation demands concerted collective action. It's easy to feel frustrated and despairing when we hear the call for this ignored. We see the fossil fuel industry being subsidized to the tune of billions and support for renewables and low-carbon energy systems being undermined. There are powerful forces operating here. And in the Buddha's teachings we understand the forces of greed and the forces of hatred as immensely powerful and ones that we need to address in ourselves <coughs> and in the world. Sitting on the roads, on the bridge at Waterloo in April, on the roads on Lambeth Bridge and elsewhere in October just now. Again and again, police came towards us in large numbers, having been told to use the full force of the law. And we sat together in solidarity with each other and all the people and all the beings and all the living things who are in danger. Remembering the great-grandchildren who have not yet come, who are looking to us for their future. And as the police would come towards us, many times we would chant to them, Police, we love you. We're doing this for your children too. It's not to say they were always friendly or kindly, although sometimes they really were, but sometimes also quite harsh. And yet remembering we're doing this for everyone. 
seems so important to me. So important as we were carried away to remember that they're doing their job and I'm doing mine as I see it. And each of us, of course, will see our own role and function differently. I'm not suggesting that the way I'm seeing it or responding is how anyone else must or should. But what's been really interesting for me is to understand that non-violent mass civil disobedience gives ordinary people a voice that cannot be ignored. And if you've had the experiences I have of feeling frustrated at the way the calls of concern are so easily ignored, then it's interesting. Harnessing the power of collective concern and focusing it through disruption and sacrifice. Disruption gets attention. It's not popular. Nobody likes it. Nobody likes doing it. But it gets the attention of the community. And even if they don't like the fact that it's getting their attention, it turns attention to why the disruption is happening. And sacrifice touches people. It's interesting how many conversations I've had with people about climate change subsequent to being arrested for it, and now I've been arrested several times, where they're interested to talk about it because they're interested in why someone chooses to get arrested. It's like there's a way in which sacrifice calls us as a community to look. What's happening when someone puts themselves in the way of danger or takes on some, some suffering, some harm or some loss on behalf of the collective whole? This is something that touches us as human beings that we, we honour as we fire, sorry, as we honour, for instance, the fire service, people who, who take risks for all of our safety and protection. And nonviolent civil disobedience can precipitate real change. The suffragettes in this country in the sort of a century ago, the Indian independence movement led by Gandhi, my grandmother, I think, did I mention her a few days ago? She was one of the, the young Indian women in that movement. That's how she met my grandfather. See, he wasn't Indian, but he was there and he joined in. So I have some history in this particular thing, it seems. She's still alive, age 102, and still still quotes Gandhi and uh, the Indian scriptures to me whenever I visit. The American Civil Rights Movement, inspired by Rosa Parks, and the, the Freedom Riders, and Martin Luther King's leadership. We've seen profound social change in the face of intransigent and entrenched prejudice and harm. And research confirms that it's effective. Interestingly, it's a little bit like meditation. You may wonder. But meditation, in fact, I've come to understand is an internal expression of non-violent civil disobedience. You've got to learn to be non-violent when you learn to practice. The first thing we start off is we're grumpy. We, we're irritated with everybody else who's caused all the suffering inside me, most of us, when we begin. And after a while, we start watching and we get to know it. And we realize, oh, actually, no, they didn't cause it. It's more like, hmm, 
looks like it's me. It's actually me causing it. And we can be quite harsh towards ourselves at times, but in fact we need to learn to not judge ourselves or others in this in a process, but to say, oh, these conditions have arisen, these circumstances, these difficult experiences arise out of many interlocking conditions. And that's the non-violent piece in terms of meditation. And then civil disobedience. Interestingly, what we learn in meditation is to no longer be compelled to enact the internal injunctions that say, you must do this thing even when you know it's harmful. Or you must not do that thing, even though you know it's actually for your well-being. So often we're compelled by inner forces. When we don't have enough inner stability and clarity, and we just end up acting on following those patterns. And we find ourselves bound. Inner freedom is where we're no longer bound to have to follow the reactive habits and patterns of heart and mind. And there's an outer freedom that starts to come when we realize that we can make a choice to say what I will follow that feels aligned with what is true. And maybe where it does not feel aligned with well-being and truth, I have a choice that I could engage with in not following it. And in the times where I've been arrested, many of those occasions, not always, but it's impossible to talk with the officers and speak with them about the concerns and we often actually found quite a warmth of connection just in sharing the humanness of the situation and that for some of them indeed they too were aware and concerned about their children and what the world will be for the next generations. Buddhist teachings, but I think also all authentic spirituality, recognize, recognizes the value and sacredness of all living things and living systems. And ultimately asks us to prioritize the collective well-being over pursuing our personal advantage, gain or benefit. And it actually also we start to see and understand that this is where the true happiness comes from. Not from maximizing personal advantage, but from what we've given, what we've shared, how well we've loved others and this world. That's where the happiness and the fulfillment comes from in the end for us. And so to let go of comfort, convenience, and take risks with our privilege or even our liberty in the service of our shared interest and the common good. This is something we might come to feel as a sacred duty we might actually understand that as a form of enlightened selfishness that the deeper well-being that comes when we are aligned with what we feel is most true is worth the discomforts that that inevitably costs us and the losses losses that that inevitably gives rise to because the deeper loss is to lose the sense of authenticity and integrity that comes from listening to and acting in that inner alignment. There's a deepening spiritual well-being that comes from this. To live in the spirit of and the expression of service for the fragile and remarkable 
web of life that we are part of. Martin Luther King observed once, he said, never be afraid to do what is right. Society's punishments are small compared to the wounds we inflict on our soul when we look the other way. And of course, as I said, I think, I can't know what you need to do, what you should do. It's certainly not for me to suggest that. Please don't take what I'm speaking of as anything other than an expression of my own sense of what I feel called and moved to do. But as you contemplate your choices, your situation, do inform yourself. Let yourself pay attention to the information. Take it in. And also listen to your heart. Listen to your friends. Listen to people you trust and care about. In the way of finding your own authentic life, your own authentic journey, your own authentic responses and actions. We're in a mutually interdependent world. No one thing will or will not make the final difference. Everything contributes, but nothing by itself makes it all happen. Our intentional actions do not guarantee outcomes, but I have a deep confidence that they always make a difference. Whatever we do, just one more conversation, just one moment of sharing and opening and talking with another that may or may not lead to something further. In the, in the context of Extinction Rebellion, it's important to say that as a movement, it's not suggesting that everyone has to act in this way, although, of course, it would be kind of amazing if they did. But that there are many different ways to engage. And even the process of being arrested, it's a bit like in the fire service. There's a few people who are trained up and willing and ready and able to go into a burning building and... They're important, but they're not more important than the people who stand on the side of the road holding the fire hose. And they're not more important than the people who drive the fire engine or the people who sit in the back office filling in the forms to requisition the coat that the person who goes in to the building wears so they are safe when they do that. All those roles are there in any movement. All those roles are there in our world. And we may need to find our own role if we feel moved to respond. And as I said, I have a deep confidence that whatever our response is, if we listen, if we're connected with our heart and our care, then whatever that response shows itself as will be of value and will make a difference. And it's always struck me that this, there's been an atmosphere of, of really heartfelt love and peace and goodness with us pretty much every time we got cleared away from the site we were in or the place we were holding because just coming back again to that sense of, of care of mutual concern and love and a sense of just doing what we can just doing what we can and you may or may not have some sense of this but it's certainly been clear to me that um, in the last year the climate emergency has really emerged into our consciousness more fully. Some of that has certainly been to do with the amazing stand and personality and courage of the young Swedish woman Greta Thunberg 
and the, uh, the young people who have heard and been inspired by her and followed her courageous actions in uh, stepping out of school and onto the streets, calling to the adults to act like adults, and uh, rightly so. And the actions of Extinction Rebellion, I believe, have propelled this topic into the, into the light of the media and the public consciousness also very clearly and strongly and other movements and actions too, of which there are many. And it seems clear to me, and in fact there's, there's, very, the, there's a, um, one graphic I've seen is for the words um, climate emergency and how many times it turns up in a Google search. And it sort of was kind of flatlining at a certain level. And then from April with the big XR rebellion movement action, it suddenly started to peak and it stayed much higher since. It's like something about people standing up, being willing to put their liberty and their comfort on the line, has moved us collectively. So in this country at least, the emergency situation has been recognised by Parliament and the government has committed to zero greenhouse gas, net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, which is way too late, unfortunately. But it's better than anywhere else has managed yet. And um, it's certainly a step in the right direction of which further steps are still needed. Although there are no guarantees, the, the science does suggest there are possible solutions to the situation if we act urgently, collectively. As, as communities, as countries, as states, and as an international community. It's a poem written by a friend of mine. I'm wondering whether to read it or not. That's why I paused. I find it very touching, beautiful, but also painful. I think I'm going to share it with you because um, it's also an expression of how there's many different paths to offer. And this friend who wrote it after a conversation with, my, with Catherine, my wife and I, we were talking about... Um, one of the founders of XR, Gail Bradbrook, she uh, posed a question in one of her one of her talks. Where she was, you know, saying to us that as a human community, we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be a good ancestor? And he wrote this poem. He said, "I, I have, you know, I've, I have my son to look after. I can't get arrested." But he's a poet, and he, he wrote this remarkable poem. His name name is Deverick Leggett. He lives locally. He's a friend of mine. So. The Good Ancestor, he writes. Every day I walk a hundred years to the hill where my great-great-granddaughter sits. I carry words of blessing and reach to touch her back. But feeling me near, she turns, sad-eyed and heavy with grief. What was it like, she asks, when the great whales swam, when the birds sang you awake, when the rains came soft, and the soil smelled sweet underfoot. 
and the blessings catch in my throat. On darker days she turns her famished face, charred and eyes sunk in their bony orbits, burn with curses, and the blessings froth at my mouth with the poisonous spume of betrayal. On the darkest of all days I walk the hundred years and find no one there. Let today be the bright day. Let today be the bright day. I lay my hand upon her back and feeling me there she turns and blesses me saying, Your love was fierce enough, sweet ancestor. Your love was fierce enough. Every day I walk a hundred years to the hill where my great-great-granddaughter sits. I carry words of blessing and reach to touch her back. Let today be the bright day. Let today be the bright day. I lay my hand upon her back and feeling me there she turns and blesses me, saying, Your love was fierce enough, sweet ancestor. Your love was fierce enough. In the Buddha's teaching, there's an image that represents that quality of fierce compassion that the Buddha talks about. And he, he, he talks about it in terms of the quality of a mother, but I would say we could translate it as a parent, who standing outside the door of the room in which her child is resting. The quality that parent would bring to face someone who came towards the room wishing to harm the child. And just, no, stop, you will not come in here. Doesn't have to mean I've got anything against you, but there's no way you're coming through this door. This quality of fierce compassion, of standing up. And sometimes you may see there are images of the Buddha like this. In fact, usually right-handed. You can try it if you like. It's an interesting mudra. If you make your hand firm, just place it in front of your body wherever it feels about right for you. Notice, what do you feel when you do that? What do you notice, anyone? Would you like to say? <coughs> Stop. Anyone else notice a feeling or a sense of what's associated with it or what it expresses or how you feel? strength anything else sorry conviction yeah interesting it's called the fearless mudra abhaya is the word in the pali the buddha's the language of the buddha's teachings recorded in and it it's the soft part of your hand it's not aggressive it's not violent but it's firm and it's strong it's a universal mudra for saying stop. You know, when a traffic officer goes onto the road, that's what they do to tell the cars to stop. They don't need to say anything. It's clear. Stop or no. It also has the effect of creating space and protective room in front of one. It's interesting to notice what it's like to put there. And it's, it's sometimes, as I said, you see the Buddha in this mudra. Stop. It's kind of fierce, but it's also open-hearted and soft. And interesting, this is the, the mudra one uses when one glues oneself to a door. Um, <laughs> so I 
was recently just uh, finished being on trial for having glued myself to a conference door of a petroleum industry conference and spent four hours like this. A very interesting position to be in. I was kind of worried before. My hand would be all right afterwards, but it was. So as I said, there are many different ways we can find our expression in this life. There are many different things we may be concerned with. This is one that I think is of urgent and universal concern, but there are others equally that are, are valid and important that may be also where your heart is engaged. Spiritual practice and the cultivation of wisdom, the deepening in our heart's capacity for loving kindness, is not something separate from our world and our lives and our action. And I'd really invite you to remember that the future is always uncertain. That our practice is a foundation for meeting whatever comes with an open heart. And that it's a foundation for finding the courage to go beyond what we might have imagined was possible for us. This is really the call and the invitation of freedom. And as we face the circumstance of our world, so important to keep coming back to, connecting with our hearts. This quality of loving kindness for ourselves and for others and for the world. This quality of compassionate and courageous willingness to engage, to bring about the reduction, the healing, the transformation of suffering. To act where we can with compassion and courage, equally important. And it's also essential that we make a practice of acknowledging and appreciating what is fortunate, what is beautiful, what is precious in our life. Taking moments to feel our tender, soft human body and to acknowledge it, to value it, to allow ourselves to appreciate the trees and the starlit sky or the call of a, there was a robin in the, in the gardens earlier today just singing so sweetly. And just to really include those moments and let them in as fully, enjoy them and appreciate them as deeply as we might also need to let in and acknowledge and feel those things that are sorrowful, tragic, or deeply concerning. So that we also cultivate joy and uplift in the heart as a balance for the sorrows that we may also encounter. And we also need to cultivate and develop the capacity to recognize that the unfoldment of life is not in our control. It has its own lawfulness, its own unstoppableness. And we need to bow to that with equanimity. We need to acknowledge that, yes, I can give to my practice, to my life, to my community, to my world. All that I can give, I can give. And outcomes are not determined by that. We don't know what will be the final situation. But we can know that having given what we can, that will have made a difference. These boundless dimensions of heart we talk about in the Buddha's teachings as the, the sacred home 
the home of the divine, the Brahma Viharas, where we can come to be at home, even if our world and our home is under threat, to be able to come back to kindness, to compassion, to appreciative joy and to equanimity. This is where our true home for our heart can be found. And to to remember the words of Leonard Cohen. I think it was from Boogie Street. He says, And so, my friends, be not afraid. We are so lightly here. It is in love that we are made. In love we disappear. Is it not still inexplicable, remarkable, mysterious and blessed that we are here at all? So let's sit together quietly for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.